this is your first or second time. I'm not the usual one up here. Uh, and last week, Joe did such a great job on his candidating weekend. I'm, I'm, uh, I get to follow that, so we'll see how this goes. Uh, but if you are new here, come back, because Dana will be back in a few weeks from vacation, and I'd love to have you hear him preach as well. Let's pray. Father God, we approach your word. We recognize that the Bible is the very words of God. And who are we to hear you speak, God? Who are we to even crack open this book? And yet, you and your grace and your love have given it to us so that we might be challenged, so that we might listen to you, so that we might grow. Holy Spirit, would you speak through your words, through the Bible, through my voice, through my lips today, and to the hearts of everyone listening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I like watching the television show Shark Tank. Now, I don't know if there's any, are there any Shark Tank fans? You can raise your hands. All right, so you're the capitalists in the, in the room. Um, Shark Tank is, the, uh, is a television show about entrepreneurs and kind of making something out of nothing. It's about small business. It's about entrepreneurs. And in every show, a, a small business owner, someone with an idea, or maybe it's a failing idea where they've tried something and they can't get it quite right, they take this idea and they present it to the sharks. Now, the sharks are wealthy investors, wealthy businessmen and women, venture capitalists, who can uh, give money, buy into the business, and really revitalize the businesses or get them off the ground. Now, at the beginning of every show, there's kind of these intro credits, and I'm going to read the intro credits to you, but as I'm reading them, I want you to imagine luxury airplanes and fast cars, uh, really clean suits, big desks, big offices, tall buildings. These people have made it. So who are the sharks? Well, they're self-made millionaire and billionaire investors who are entrepreneurs themselves. Kevin O'Leary is a venture capitalist who turned a $10,000 loan into a software business worth $4.2 billion. Barbara Cochran went from working as a waitress in Manhattan to building the city's preeminent real estate empire. Damon John is a fashion and branding expert who grew his homegrown clothing line into the globally recognized fashion brand, FUBU. Robert Herchevec, the son of an immigrant factory worker, is now the technology mogul who sold his first internet companies for over $350 million. And Mark Cuban, notorious billionaire entrepreneur and the outspoken owner of the Dallas Mavericks. Notice that each story starts with someone who had very little. So someone who had a $10,000 loan or someone who was a waitress in Manhattan. And they made themselves by their pure effort, by the sweat of their brow, by their own merit. They made themselves into something great, into something big, something worth respecting. And they get a lot of respect because as the, the, the entrepreneurs who are trying to sell them on their business ideas come in, they're, they're nervous and, and they have to negotiate. 
And the sharks really are sharks. They'll tear people apart if they don't know their finances, if they don't know their business. They really expect to see people work hard and to be like them, to show that they can do it on their own or unless they have the will, the will to try. They love it when, when entrepreneurs know their finances, when they uh, have gone door-to-door selling their items, when they've given up everything to succeed. That's when they'll invest. And this message is not necessarily a bad message, but it's a message of works. It's a message that if you do something, you're worth something. That if you succeed, you're a success. And I'm going to take this illustration and turn to the book of Galatians because Paul is writing to a church that is infested with sharks. The sharks are the Jewish religious leaders. Uh, They're they're Judaizers who are in the church of Galatia, and they are telling the Galatians that they have to do a lot of good works in order to please God. They have to be circumcised. They have to obey the whole Old Testament law. They have to become Jewish in order to become Christian. See, this church had a whole bunch of uh, new converts, people who are young in their faith. They're wondering, well, how do, I, how do I be a Christian? And there's one sect of people, the sharks, who say, do, do, do. Effort, effort, effort. And Paul is writing them a message that says, no, no, this is not about your merit. Christianity is about God's grace. It's not about what you can do to succeed. It's about the success that we have in Christ Jesus. Galatians 1, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 10 through 2.14 tells us that the gospel defeats our self. The gospel defeats our self, our, our own merit, in order to win our freedom. The gospel defeats our self to win our freedom. I'm going to read Galatians 1, 10 through 2.14. It's kind of long, uh, but I'm going to read it once, and then as we work back through the message, we're going to stop on a few verses, kind of the highlights, but uh, even to read the Word of God is an act of worship, so let's do that together. Galatians 1, 10. Am I now trying to win the approval of men? This is Paul writing. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God, or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. 
Later, I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the reports. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Chapter 2. Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy out the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those repudiated to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in, their, in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? There we go. The gospel defeats ourself to win our freedom. These sharks are attacking Paul's gospel authority. They're saying, who are you to preach this message? We don't trust you. You're not an apostle. You don't know the true message. We know the true message. We've been preaching it for thousands of years. This is a message of works that you must obey every aspect of the law in order to be saved. And Paul is saying, no, the gospel defeats ourself. To win our freedom. And how does it do this? Well, the gospel first defeats our self-reliance. The gospel defeats the me, the I, the trusting in myself. Verses 10 through 12 of chapter 1 show us that the gospel makes us choose between reliance on myself or reliance on God. It makes us choose between self-reliance or God-reliance. This is what the gospel does. And if you don't know what the gospel is, hold on, I'll explain that in a little bit. But first, Paul is facing this extreme opposition, and, and they're saying, no, you need to rely on yourself. You need to do these things in order to please God. And the message of the gospel is completely opposite than that. See, and Paul had a choice. He could either trust in, him, in himself and his own strength and his own abilities, 
You know, he was quite the order. He could have uh, you know, argued his way out of this. Instead, he says, no, I'm going to trust in God. Verse 10 is all about doing it God's way. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of God. So you can either be a servant of people and try to do it people's way, or you can do it God's way. Timothy Keller wrote a book called Galatians for You. I love his uh, The Gospel, God's Word for You series. I highly recommend it, Galatians for You. And I uh, drew on that as I was preparing this. And in that, Timothy Keller points out that we can either be God-pleasers, or we can be people-pleasers. Now, I, in my own nature, am a people-pleaser. That's my, my first you know, natural quality. I like to make people happy, and that is not the best quality to have in a pastor. Because you want your pastor to say, here's God's word, deal with it. Thanks for ordaining me, by the way. Paul received the gospel, and he had decided, what, do, I, do I care what other people think? And, and when we each individually receive the gospel message, we have to decide that too. Am I going to go through life worrying more about what other people think or about what God thinks? Because God is the one who has the reward, who has the, the final answer, the final say in all things. Now, it's probably hard to believe now, but I actually took uh, business calculus in college uh, and I was very nervous to take business calculus. I'd never taken calculus before, and I know like 95% of this room is engineers, so that's nothing to you. Uh, but I was nervous, and so I devised a strategy. And instead of kind of like sitting in the back of the class, buckling down and studying really hard, I decided I would sit up at the very front. And I would get to know the teacher, and I would make sure that the teacher knew me, and I would go to office hours. Uh, and this was a, a class of about 100 students. And one day in the middle of class, I had not asked a question, uh, the teacher just turned to me and said, Jonathan, do you get it? And I decided I should stop asking questions. <laughs> After that, classmates I didn't even know began coming up to me and saying, hey, I'm in your calculus class. But in the end, I might not have pleased my classmates, but I did get an A. See, I realized that the reward for pleasing my teacher was greater than the reward for pleasing my classmates. And as we, become, as we come before the gospel and before God's Bible, we have to realize that the reward for pleasing God is greater than the reward for pleasing people. That following God's ways, that trusting in His Word and His method of salvation instead of our own is a much wiser decision the gospel defeats our self-reliance. It defeats doing it my way for God's way. In verses 17 through 18, Paul tells us that he went to Arabia for three years. I, I think this is such a fascinating thing. So he went to Arabia. He received a revelation. Verse 12 talks him receiving a revelation from Jesus Christ. So it's this idea that uh, after conversion, after he, he met Jesus on, on the road to Damascus, he, he went away for three years and, and learned from the master himself. And in here, there's like a subtle argument against those sharks. He's saying, the gospel is so unique, I could only receive it from God himself. See, the gospel is counterintuitive. Now I want to explain the gospel to you that maybe don't know what that word means. It's euangelion, uh, which means uh, good, euangelion, news. It's a Greek word, good news. So what is this good news? Well, you can break it apart in two ways. There's a good news story, and there's a good news exchange. 
So the good news is that God had mercy on us, on sinners, on people, and he sent his son, Christ Jesus, to save us. And how did Jesus do that? Well, he was uh, born as a man. He, he lived and grew and, and, and grew in wisdom and in stature. He called disciples to follow him, and he preached a radically different message from what the world believed. Believe in me. Trust in me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then we crucified him. We crucified him on a cross, and he paid the penalty for all who would trust in him. God, God poured out his wrath upon Jesus. He crushed him because you and I are so sinful, someone had to take the punishment. And the only one who could pay the penalty for our sins is a man of infinite worth, Jesus Christ himself. But thankfully, the gospel doesn't end there because it is good news. Three days later, Jesus rose from the grave. He rose from the grave in victory over sin, over death, over shame, over guilt. He says, believe in me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Follow me. Put all of your eggs in my basket. So that's the good news story. And the good news trade is that you can trade with Jesus. Say, Jesus, here, take all of my sin. I cannot bear it. And would you give me all of your holiness, all of your righteousness? And Jesus, because he loves us, is willing to make this exchange. Yes. Come into my family. Here is the holiness of God. Have it for yourself. And this message is counterintuitive because we like to take responsibility for our own lives. We like to be in control of our own lives. And the gospel says, no. No matter how good you are, no matter how many good works you perform, your, your record, your, your, your complete package is never going to be good enough. And so you have to take the record of Christ for yourself. I think it's interesting that the gospel the gospel is God's plan to defeat ourselves, to kind of help us give up on our own good works. So the gospel both defeats us, but it also wins us. God, God wants to, to win us for himself, to bring us home because he loves us. And this is where Paul finds his authority in the uniqueness of the gospel. Saying, look at what God has done. This is a revelation from Jesus Christ. It's not from man. It's from the Son of Man. It's from Jesus. Paul did it God's way. And I know this illustration has probably been overused a million times, but Frank Sinatra sang the song, I did it my way. The last verse goes, For what is a man, what has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. Yes, it was my way. But Paul sang a different tune. He said, I did it God's way. And you and I have to choose to sing that same song. We did it God's way. Doing, it's God's, doing, doing life God's way, trusting in him, in him, trusting in the gospel is not easy. It creates all sorts of awkwardness and all sorts of situations where we have to decide, are we going to be God-pleasers or people-pleasers? In our careers, are we going to do things God's way? Are we going to do things 
the easy way. At school, are we going to uh, cheat and, 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 and go the wrong path? Are we going to do it God's way? In relationships, are we going to take advantage of others? Or are we going to remember that Christ died for us? How can we take advantage of anyone? Because Christ gave himself for you and for me. So the gospel defeats our self-reliance. The gospel defeats doing it my way. Instead, I do it God's way. The gospel also defeats our self-righteousness. So the gospel defeats our self-reliance and our self-righteousness. Verses 13 through 24, we're moving along. Now in these verses, 13 through chapter 2, verse 10, I believe, uh, Paul is really sharing his testimony. He's saying, you know, this, is, this is kind of my call to ministry. Uh, this is my, uh, a little bit of my uh, kind of conversion and my really uh, being taught and, and, and learning from God himself. And in this testimony, Paul has to choose, just like earlier he chose between self-reliance or God-reliance, Paul has to choose now between self-righteousness or righteousness in Christ. See, verses 13 through 17 talk about religious Paul. They talk about orthodox Paul. Verse 13, for you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how I intensely I persecuted the church. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Paul was an A student. He was not just a committed Christian. He was zealous for God's honor. He would get angry if he felt like God's name was marred. He was jealous for God. And Philippians 3, 4 through 6 describes himself. Paul describes himself, and it's kind of a sum total of, of how good he was. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. I think if Paul were here this morning and if he had written the, the, the book of Galatians, uh, it comes from the book of Philippians, but if he had written that this morning, maybe he would sound a little bit more like this. If you thought you were more Christian than me, you'd be wrong because I've done everything right. I grew up in the church going to Sunday school. I was a pastor's kid who memorized all of his Awana verses. I read the Bible daily, I prayed daily, and went to the very best private Christian college. I always obeyed the rules and believed the right things. I even opposed those liberals who believed the wrong things. I was a perfect A. This is how Paul describes himself. And on the road to Damascus, Paul had to kind of take all of his good works and, and, and compare them to the glory of God. In Acts chapter 9, Paul is on the road to Damascus, and he's going to go and persecute those Christians who believe in a message of grace. He's going to say, no, it's a message of law, Judaism. And there's a blinding light. And in that light, he, he glimpses Christ Jesus. And God says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul, for a moment, glimpses the holiness of God 
And he says, my good works are nothing before him. Everything I do is as if it were garbage before Jesus. You and I have to to do that same thing. We can look at all of our good works, everything good we've ever done, thought, felt, accomplished, all of our achievements, and say, are these anything before my God? Or am I saved a different way? See, Paul realized he was saved a different way. Verse 15 says that God set me apart from birth and called me by his grace. God chose the Apostle Paul before he was even born. Chose him by his grace before Paul could do anything good. Before Paul could do anything bad. Before he could persecute the church. Before he could write half the New Testament. God chose Paul. Before Paul believed all the right things and did all the right things. God chose Paul. And that same message of grace is extended to us. That if you're someone who trusts Christ, you can know that I am someone that God has chosen, who loves me, who has saved me completely by his grace. Not by anything good or bad I've done since I was born. See, Paul was an Orthodox Jew who did all of the right things. And I know here that we strive to be an Orthodox church. This is such a good thing. We strive to be a church that believes all of the right things, that has challenging teaching, that that wants to follow Christ with our minds. But we should be warned not to fall into the trap of believing that if I believe the right things, I go to heaven. Because that is a form of self-righteousness. Saying, my faith saves me. No, it is God's grace that saves you and nothing else. My orthodoxy, if I believe the right things, I go to heaven. God's orthodoxy, my grace saves you, nothing else. The gospel defeats our self-righteousness. Now these, these sharks, these Judaizers, they believed that they could make themselves holy before God. We're looking at verses 18 through 24. And Paul says to them, you can trust my authority that I have the true gospel message, a gospel of grace, for two reasons. In verses 18 through 19, first Paul says that he believed the same things as Peter and James before ever meeting Peter and James. So he, he received the gospel from Jesus Christ. He presented it to them, and they said, ah, that's the same thing we believe. We didn't even have to hang out with each other. And second, the fruit of the gospel is evident in Paul's life to fellow Christians, verses 23 through 24, where fellow Christians hear the report of what Paul is preaching, and they praise God because they say, ah, that message is true. And they can see the fruit in Paul's life. So how can we know if, if, if we're preaching the right message, if we're preaching the gospel message? Well, first, when we talk about the gospel, our words should line, line up with the gospel's words, with the Bible's words. 
We're saying the same things as the apostles, as those New Testament apostles. Second, when we talk to other Christians, they should recognize the truth of the gospel message. That doesn't mean you're going to agree on all the kind of secondary issues. But you should agree on the essentials that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then we should recognize the fruit of change in each other's life. See, these believers could look at Paul and say, wow, God has changed him. Look at all the fruit he is bearing for God. We should be able to recognize signs of fruit in each other's lives. That doesn't mean that one tree will be exactly the same as another with all the fullness of the fruit. We should see signs of fruit in each other's lives. See, the gospel defeats our self-reliance, and it also defeats our self-righteousness because we are utterly dependent on God. Why does the gospel do this? Well, the gospel defeats ourself to win our freedom. See, the, the gospel attacks you so that it can build you up. It says you're nothing so that you're something. Because you're something in Christ. Now, we're looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And in verse 4, Paul says that the, the sharks, the Judaizers, are trying to steal their freedom or liberty. So they're attacking the gospel saying, do, 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 in order to be saved. And they're attacking their freedom. Another way to, to, to translate this is liberty. They are trying to enslave. They're, they're trying to oppress, to make subservient, to cause to labor. And Paul is saying, no, we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. I think if Paul lived in New England, he would live in New Hampshire. Live free or die. Why does it matter? Why doesn't Paul just give in a little bit? I mean, it would kind of smooth things over in his church in Galatia, you know, that people would be a little bit more respectful of Paul. Why doesn't he just give in to their demands and say, okay, all the Christians need to be circumcised? Because this is opposed to the gospel. Titus doesn't need to be circumcised in order to be saved. You and I don't have to do good religious things in order to be saved. Now, I want all of you to go home from this message and really read your Bibles. But for some of you that already do that, maybe when you miss a day of reading your Bible, you feel immense guilt. You feel immense shame. You feel less than holy. You feel like your Christian walk is in shambles because today I didn't perform religiously. I didn't pray enough. I didn't read my Bible enough. I didn't take enough moments to think about God. Well, we can take really good things, like reading your Bible, and to make it into a works-based system. And I have to read this and this and this in order to please my God. God loves you. God loves you so much. He was willing to send His Son to die on a cross for you. Do you think His, his love for you is dependent on how well you read your Bible? It's not. Now go home and read your Bible. (laughs) The gospel gives us freedom from guilt and shame, from religious acts. Don't be oppressed by Christianity. Be liberated. Be set free in Christ Jesus and what God has done for you. Because when we put all this pressure on ourselves to perform, 
to succeed in those tasks that God has called us to, we'll just get anxious, we'll get stressed out, we'll be afraid. I want to stop and talk a little personally about the church plant for a moment. So for those of you that don't know, I I get to be the, the new church plant pastor at Cornerstone in Westford. And this has been such an exciting adventure. It's been a wonderful adventure, but it's also been one of the most stressful adventures I've ever been through. And I've noticed something about myself as I go through this, that the more I cling to the church plant, that I say, this is my church plant, and I want to do it my way, God, the more stressed I get. But when I take a step back and say, no, God, I want to do it your way. I want to be a a pleaser of you, God. This is your church. The better I feel. And maybe some of you are going through similar life ministries, Life events, maybe you're planning for VBS this summer and you're getting stressed out because it's not going well, or maybe it is, I don't know. (laughs) Maybe you're planning for a summer missions trip and you're trying hard to raise funds and they're not coming in. Maybe you're planning for for Russia or Haiti or, or any other program and they're not coming together like you would have them come. Remember, these are God's ministries. This is God's church. He will do with it what he wills. And for those of you that maybe you're not stressed out by any sort of ministry thing, but you're stressed out by some sort of life circumstance where you have family members that are uh, taking advantage of you or, or they're not reacting to, uh, to in the ways that you would like them to react, you're wondering, well, what can I do just to get them to, 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 to be better? Stop. God is in control. You are God's person. Trust him. Trust God's will in your life. Maybe you're struggling financially or in your career and things just aren't going your way. And the more you try to maneuver your finances or you try to maneuver uh, your, your career, just keeps getting worse and worse. Stop. God has complete control of your life. See, that's the gospel. The Jesus traded his record for yours. And that you can look upon the record of Jesus and say, I'm a success. I have succeeded because the cross succeeded for me. Because Jesus, Jesus' whole life, his whole record is traded for my whole record. So no matter how good or bad I do, I still get credit for Jesus. I get to steal his grade. And so yes, I want to do a good job. I want to bring God praise and glory. But my self-reliance, my righteousness, my, my hopes and dreams are not dependent on my performance. They're all dependent on Christ. The gospel defeats ourself in order to win our freedom. I want to close by encouraging you to look to Jesus, to look to the gospel, to remember that God loves you and that God has done so much for you And I want us to remember that as a church, we are called the bride of Christ. And God is preparing his bride. He is using the gospel to mold us, to to transform us, to change us. And we can be excited about what God is doing, that he's going to bring us all the way to the end, into glory. And the best way to prepare ourselves for Jesus is to stop looking at ourselves, to stop focusing on ourselves, as beautiful as we are as the bride of Christ, and to put our eyes and our heart 
on Jesus and everything he's done for us. And I was so inspired last week by Joe's preaching with variety with his illustration that I've brought a few pictures today. And these are pictures of grooms when they see their brides for the first time. You might have seen this on social media, but this is them seeing the one they love so much for the first time. You can go ahead and flip to the next one. Some of them are super excited. Some of them are really moved. You can go ahead, next one. Go ahead. One more. Thank you. This is a picture of how God sees us, of how the Son sees the church, that for all of our blemishes and all of our worries about making ourselves beautiful, he already sees us as beautiful. And one day in eternity, you will rest in that forever, but why not start today? It's easier said than done. We don't need to be self-reliant. We don't need to be self-righteous because we have all the righteousness and reliance and, 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 and strength we need in Jesus himself. The gospel defeats ourself to win our freedom. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to sing in Christ alone. Father God, help us to rely on Christ alone. Help us to see him to take our eyes off of ourselves, to put them completely and utterly upon Jesus. Help us to look to you, God, and to appreciate everything that you have done for us in the cross because we can't even begin to imagine what you have in store for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.